Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So today we're in Luke chapter 8. Um, let's begin. If you have your Bibles, go to Luke 8, and we're going to start in verse 1. If this is your first time or if you're new, um, it's expository. I'll read a little bit, uh, then we'll talk a little bit, then we'll read a little bit more. The goal is to reach uh, through most of Luke chapter 8. I don't think we'll get through the last uh, verses, like 40 to 56. We'll probably end around 40. Um, but that's what we're going to do, just to manage your expectations. Luke chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God and the 12 were with him. Now, if you're just jumping in, just a quick pause. He's in the upper region of Israel. He's traveling around Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. He's ministering at specific cities. Some cities are real open to him. Some cities are not real open to him. But right now, in this part of the ministry, he's got his 12 disciples, and he's traveling around the Sea of Galilee that's in the northern part of Israel, um, and he is in the early parts of his ministry. Verse 2, and also women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. All right, now let's pause there. So as I said, Jesus is traveling around Galilee and we find out that he doesn't have just 12 disciples following him. There's actually a lot more than that. Now, it's not a surprise to us when things like the Sermon on the Mount happen and we're told there's crowds everywhere, but in our mind, we kind of think sometimes that as he's teaching, crowds will gather and they'll show up, and then when he moves along, there isn't a crowd following him, but that isn't necessarily the case. He is with his 12 disciples, but we're told here that there are lots of other people following him too, and in this case, Luke draws our attention to the fact that the majority of the people that were following him other than 12 disciples was a group of women. Now, it's hard for me to explain to you how revolutionary this was. The reason why is because we're all sitting right here in a room where men and women are sitting next together learning God's word together. This is normal for us. But this wasn't normal in the first century. In the first century, men and women didn't learn together. They were segregated. Women sat over here. They... Sometimes they didn't listen at all. They just listened to what their husbands told them when they went home. There wasn't a sense in the first century where men and women are learning together. From historical record, there are a few small philosophical circles where a, uh, a philosopher would have some women students, but by and large, throughout the Roman culture, this was unheard of, and certainly unheard of in the Jewish culture. So it's hard for us to read this and get a sense for how revolutionary this was that Jesus had male and female followers. And the female followers that were with him, they spanned all manner of social uh, strata. There were some who had been uh, you know, possessed by demons. 
all the way up to the wife of the household manager. So this, this group that's following Jesus, it covers everybody. But what's interesting is if we just take uh, an opportunity to zoom out from Luke 8, 1 through 3, and take in the entire book of Luke, and also his second book that he wrote, the book of Acts, what we find is that this, um, this isn't new to Luke, the idea that women being involved in the ministry of Jesus. In fact, in Luke's gospel and in the book of Acts, there are women everywhere. There's, um, remember when we started around Christmas time, there was Elizabeth, there was Anna the prophet, there was the sinful woman from Luke 7 in the last week's chapter, there's Mary, there's Martha, there's Susanna, there's the crippled woman in Luke 13 that we'll cover. Many of the parables that Jesus taught included women. And then when we get into the book of Acts, what you find in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, is that when Paul goes into the town, one of the first ladies, or one of the first things he finds is a woman's Bible study led by this woman named Lydia. And that is the foundation for how he plants the church in that town. But it's not just Luke and it's Acts. Actually, if you zoom even wider and take into account the entire Bible story, you actually find women everywhere. This isn't actually new to Luke and Acts. This is a pattern followed throughout the whole Bible. You find women who served at the temple in 1 Samuel 2.22. If you were with us on our 1 Samuel series, you remember those were the women that Eli's sons were having an affair with. They were serving, we're told that they were serving at the temple, so they had some function within temple worship. We also find that were women prophets, women judges, Judges 4.4, women leading worship, Exodus 15.20.21, women financially supporting the ministry like here in Luke 8, but also in 1 Kings 17.11-13. We also find women exercising spiritual gifts. It's one of the things that Joel in chapter 2, verses 28-32 tells us is the mark that the Holy Spirit is moving in the midst of his people in the latter days. He says, I'm going to pour out my spirit on your sons and your sons. No, daughters. They're going to prophesy too. As we were going through our Acts series, we found out that Philip had, had many daughters who all prophesied. Now, what is the point of this? Why is this important for us to know? Why is Luke giving this, one ver- verses 1, 2, and 3, why is he calling attention to the fact that there were women following Jesus in ministry? Why is this important? Because the kingdom has come for everyone. That's why it's important. The kingdom has not just come for a specific group of people. It hasn't just come for um, pastors and everyone else. You just got to follow them because you don't get access. It hasn't come to certain people with a certain amount of money. It hasn't come to a certain group. It hasn't come to just men. It's been poured out on women as well. This is very important for us to understand. It is Paul's, um, or Luke's introduction to us for, to, to set the tone for us before we're about to get into the parable. You cannot understand the parable of the sower that we're about to read unless you first digest the reality that this parable is for everyone. This is important because if you're about to, the the parable that we're about to read of the sower, if you approach this and think, man, well, this is for my kid. It's not for your kid, it's for you. Or if you're a kid in here and you're reading this and you're thinking, man, this isn't for me, this is for my parents. 
No, it's not for your parents, it's for you. Or you think, no, no, this isn't, this isn't for me, this is for politicians, they need to read this. No, it's for you. There is no way that you can approach the word of God and faithfully say that what this is about is for somebody else and not me. That's why at the very beginning, Luke sets it out. Hey, who's around Jesus, following him, listening to his message? Everyone, because this kingdom has come for everyone. It's come for the rich, for the poor. It's come for the men, the women, the Gentiles, the Jews. It's for everyone. So before we read it, you have to understand that what we're about to read is for you. Now you're like, well, I knew that. Duh. (laughs) But there is a difference between knowing something up here and approaching God's word with a level of reverence where you understand what I'm about to read is actually, it's coming for me. See, here's what church people like to do. They like to act like this word is coming for somebody else. You better watch out. He's gonna judge you, he's, he's coming for you. Or man, his love is coming for you and it's gonna, it's gonna you, you can't resist, it's coming for you. But we, ref, we, we forget the, 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 the very strong reality that no, first and foremost, this is for you. Take the splinter out of your own eye. Address your own issues. Consider what this text, when fully planted in, the, soul, uh, in, the, in the, the soil of your heart, is gonna do on the inside of you. So that's the warning before we approach. The idea that what you're about to listen to, this message isn't for somebody else, it's for you. So really, let the Holy Spirit speak to you. This isn't for man, if my husband could just listen to this, my marriage would be better. No, this is for you. Listen, open your ears, open your eyes, and allow the parable of the seeds and the lamp to read your mail. Amen? Amen. Okay, so let's read it. Go to chapter, uh, Luke chapter eight, uh, verse four. It says, a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him. And he said in a parable, The sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew, it it withered away because it had no moisture. And some it fell on thorns, and the thorns grew up, and with it choked it. But some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. When his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. And the ones along the path are those who have heard. 
And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a little while, and in a time of testing, they fall away. But as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And as for that, in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. See, no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. So take care then how you hear. Take care then how you hear. For to those, to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Jesus shares two parables with the crowd that has gathered, the seed and the lamp. And as I said a few weeks ago, both of them contain a secret or a hidden meaning. The word in Greek is mysterion. It's a a mystery. What you see and what you hear There's more to it than that. That, That's just the surface. What you see has a deeper meaning to it. And he explains the deeper meaning to the disciples. He says the seeds, the seeds are the word of God. Now that's important because if you're not careful, you will start assigning meaning to this and you're gonna walk away in a completely different garden than what the Lord wants you in. So pay attention to what he said these things are. The seed is the word of God. The sower is Jesus. He's the one who's faithfully sowing the word of God. And the soil are the hearts of the people. And what he says here is that there's a couple different ways that the word can land because the word is spread to everyone. Everybody is given a fair share of the word of God. It's, it's in his ministry, he's sharing it with everybody. But how the seed develops is a condition of the heart. The faithful sower is out here sowing seed. But what happens to that seed depends on your heart. And the way he explains it here is he says, look, the faithful sower can come out here and sow seed, but sometimes it's gonna land on a heart that has been trampled down, and the enemy's gonna come and he's gonna steal the seed before it ever has an opportunity to get under the ground before it even has an opportunity to receive any water or any nourishment. 
It's not even going to get into the dirt before it's stolen from the enemy. But there's another way that the seed can land. The seed can land in some soil that's a little bit rocky. The rocks are temptations, and temptation can block the word from taking root. Your life is so filled with the temptations of this world that when the word of God comes forward, man, it just doesn't land well because deep down, there are so many other things you want than that word. There's another way that the word can land. When it lands, it can land on some soil that's been maybe turned up and it can actually get down into the soil and start producing a little bit of root. But as soon as it starts to spring up, it springs up into a garden filled with thorns. And the thorns are the cares of this world. What happens is that the cares of this world eventually choke out God's word and it never really produces any fruit. And then the last type of soil, the last condition of the heart, is a heart that has been turned over and wants so desperately for God's word to get on the inside of them. It's honest and good soil, it's fertile soil, and when the the word of God lands on it, it finds that the soil is ready to receive it and it produces a hundredfold yield. Now the second parable about the lamp is actually connected to the last soil condition in the previous parable. There's no transition there. He's literally just going from one point to the next point. So he's talking about the kind of soil that has received the word of God and produces lots and lots of fruit. And then he says that kind of soil, it's like something else, it's like a lamp that's lit lit and is bright. And when when you light it in your house, you don't hide it under a basket, you don't hide it under a bed, you put it up where it can cast light in the entire room. And so what he's doing here is he's using the understanding that like, look, you understand that the word, when it starts producing fruit, it's gonna, be, uh, when, when the seed starts producing fruit, it's kind of like this other parable of a light that illuminates the darkness. And the beautiful thing about the lamp and transitioning into this other parable is that the light actually helps expose your areas of darkness in your own life, but it's a lamp that's set up on uh, a place for it to cast light over the whole room. And so the light of God in you doesn't just illuminate things in your own life, it's actually illuminating things everywhere it's placed, like at your job, like at your school, like in your neighborhood. The light of God is meant to illuminate the darkness. It helps people see where things go, where things are, but it actually, helps people navigate and understand where things shouldn't be. So there's a lot of mystery to this parable that can be unpacked, but what I wanna draw your attention to is verse 18. He says, after giving the two parables, take care then how you hear. That's interesting. Why is Jesus telling us that we need to take care how we hear? Why do we need to pay attention to how we hear these parables? Because of what he told us in verse 10. To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but for others it's in parables so that 
seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now that may be a little confusing to us. We don't, like that doesn't, I'm confused. Why, why would the Lord say something that he doesn't want you to understand? Well, what Jesus is doing when he quotes that is he's actually quoting a prophet from 700 years earlier. It's a guy named Isaiah. And when Jesus said this, everyone in the room is familiar with Isaiah. And so when Jesus says it, they're like, yeah, I'm tracking with you. I know exactly what you're talking about. But for some of us, we may be unfamiliar. So I want us to read Isaiah's words that Jesus quoted. So if you have your Bibles, go over to Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. We'll throw it up on the screen. Isaiah is a prophet 700 years before Jesus shows up on the scene. And what he's speaking here in Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 is he's speaking what God has spoken to him. But it's prophetic. It isn't a message that Isaiah is just supposed to take to his people. It's a message that would be incubated for 700 years that ultimately would be fulfilled in Jesus going to his people. So listen to what the Lord is saying here. Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Why does Jesus tell us in verse 18 that we have to take care how we hear? Because how you hear the word of God results in either a blessing or a curse. That's why you have to be careful about hearing the word of God. Because depending on the soil of the heart, how you receive this word, it will result. If your, if your heart is good soil, now, when I say that, I don't want you thinking like, oh, there's good people out there, and if you're just good enough, you can get to heaven by being good enough. That's not what he's talking about. When he says good soil, what he's talking about is humble soil, repentant soil, the kind of soil in the heart that wants nothing more than God's word. This world, it's got nothing for me. All I want is the treasure in the field, and I'll sell everything to get it. That's good soil. And so what Jesus and Isaiah are saying is that when you hear the word of God and your heart is in a posture to be able to receive it, it's going to sound like music to your ears. When you show up on Sunday morning and you hear the word of God preached, sometimes it's gonna sting and hurt, but it's gonna hurt real good. You know what I'm talking about? You're like, that, that makes me very uncomfortable, but but I need to be made feel very uncomfortable. I, I, I didn't like that, but I did like that very much. I want more of that. I'm gonna read so I can get more of that because I've realized that who I am and the way I think things and how I, brought, how I was brought up, like it was wrong. That the way of this world is wrong. That the way I've been taught is wrong. And I thought I was right, and I tried to teach other people that I was right. But when I'm confronted with this, I realize that I am wrong. And hearing that I'm wrong is like music to my ears, and I want to change. That's the seed landing on good soil, and it's gonna produce fruit. But there's a warning here. If you hear the word of God, and the word lands on soil that is bad, the parable leaves you resistant. 
The parables are almost like a litmus test to reveal to you what the real condition of your heart is. Because if when God's word is preached, it lands well, it reveals that you are a person whose heart is ready to receive God's word. But if it lands in such a way, we're like, God, this guy's always yapping. Every time I show up, he's telling me what I'm doing wrong and how I need to change. He's getting in my business. Mm. You do understand that that's not me, right? The Holy Spirit's the one working on you. That ain't me. I don't even know you. <laughs> that stuff starts getting on the inside of you and turning you over. And, and here's, the, here's why you have to take care. Because in all of your going to church every week or once a month or once a quarter or on Christmas and Easter, in all of your listening to podcasts and trying to listen to sermons and telling yourself, listening to the sermon online, it's as good as going to church, it's the same kind of thing. In all of the ways that you convince yourself that you could get yourself surrounded by the Word of God to read this book, to read this Bible, to hear this sermon, the more you hear it, the more you are accountable to it. And that's the warning. That's why you have to take care. And that's the thing that I don't think we really fully understand. We think that we're checking off on God's you know, attendance roster when we show up to church. Well, you see how many times I went? I was there, I, was, I went to all the Bible studies. Ah, you, he doesn't care. If that's not an overflow of the affections of your heart for Christ, if you're not doing those things because deep down you want Christ more than anything, man, all that stuff is just religion and you might as well stop. Don't come to church next week. Stay home. Go fishing. Because the warning is that the more you play this game, the more you come to, to, to church, and the more you hear the word of God, the more you're accountable to it. And if you don't let the word land on good soil and actually take root and start obeying it, what you're doing is actually lining yourself up with the curse of Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, that your heart is gonna grow dull. Now who's making your heart dull? In Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, it seems like the Lord is the one making your heart dull. And, and what that means is he's saying, well, I mean, if every time you hear my word and you say, I don't want that, I want what I want, then okay, I'll give you what you want. And he allows your heart to grow dull. But what's interesting is that when Paul quotes this exact same verse in Acts 28, 27, the way he speaks it to the people listening he actually says that it's the people who are making their hearts dull and closing their eyes and shutting their ears. So which is it? Is it the Lord making your heart dull or is it you making your heart dull because you keep hearing the word of God but you refuse to do anything about it? It's both. In the same way that it was both for Pharaoh. The Lord is hardening and you're hardening and what ends up at the end of this process is a man who has said, I went to church every single day of my life and then stands before a holy God who then tells him, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Oh, but I went every day. I went every Sunday. I went to Bible study. I called you Lord, Lord. Depart from me. I never knew you. 
You thought those things were the litmus test for your relationship with me. No, those are, that's the evidence of the relationship with me. That's the overflow. You do that in obedience because you want to, not because you have to. The reason why we have to take care in hearing this parable is because your stubborn heart grows over time and sometimes he actually accelerates that stubbornness. And you're like, well, you know, I've got time. Well, you may. You might be able to play this church game for the next 10 years and in his mercy, he slows that hardening because he loves you. But he also loves you so much that he may just say, I'm gonna give you exactly what you want. You don't want that. The worst thing for a successful person is to keep on being successful. Because all you know is that what you do works. Why in the world would you need anyone to save you if everything you do works? Who's this message for? Everybody. This is why we had to read one through three about the women being involved because nobody escapes this message. Not the women, not the men, not the old, not the young, not the single moms, not the, 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 the well put together families, not the people who are barely holding it together or the people who are in the nice house and they've got it all together. This isn't just for pastors, this isn't just for lay people, this isn't just for church people, this isn't for the world. The king we serve is the king over the entire universe and everyone is going to have to give an account for what they thought and did with God's word. So take care how you hear. Obey the word, let it take root in you. Because if you're not careful, you will end up stubborn with hardness of heart. But man, the last part of that verse is so good. He says, man, if they would just see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and cry out to me, I would heal them. Isaiah says that. Paul says that. Man, if, it doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to walk around with a stubborn, hard heart. You don't have to treat church like a chore. Oh man, you don't have to treat Bible reading as, as something that somebody's making you do. No, it can be something that, that it's like life and bread to you. It, there's nothing you want more than this. You're so hungry for it. And every time you visit it, man, it, it, it illuminates things that oh, I never saw that before. It heals you. Now here's the interesting pivot that, uh, that is about to happen in this chapter. Luke now knows that when he says, man, when, when the word of God lands on you, it heals you, it changes you. The next question in us is like, well, how does it heal us? In Luke 6, there was the sermon that Jesus taught. And then in Luke 7, it was all about how that sermon actually had teeth and it really manifested itself in real life. You saw actual examples. And the same thing is happening in the middle of Luke 8. You start in the beginning of Luke 8 with this parable, and then the rest of Luke 8 is switching into live action. So I wanna read some of this kind of quick here. Go to Luke 8, verses 19 through 21. 
So Jesus has just taught these parables, and now he's helping his people, his, the people who's listening to him, understand like, well, what does that really look like? Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. And he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. What does healing look like? Man, it looks like adoption. It looks like the God of the universe looking at you and calling you daughter. And calling you son. It looks like you going from an orphan of the world into one who inherits eternal life and the full kingdom of God. Jesus calls you my family. So what does healing look like? It looks like adoption. He pivots into more live action as we go into verse 22. And it's interesting the way he's telling these stories. And they don't really make sense. They they seem like they're disconnected unless you look at them through the lens of what we talked about here of the parables. Verse 22, he says, one day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let's go across the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake. And they were filling with water and they were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? (laughs) And they were afraid and they marveled saying to one another, who is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? See, Luke wants you to read that story and leaves out details that the other gospels include. He wants you to read the story in light of the parable. See, the disciples had just heard the parable of how the seed lands. When the word of God tells you you're mine and you're safe, don't worry. How is that going to land? Is it going to land in rocky soil so that the next time you're tempted to be afraid, you'll turn to fear rather than your trust in God? This is how we're supposed to read the story. In light of the parable, these guys are having to make a decision about what kind of soil their hearts are going to receive God's word at. Why don't you have any faith? We already talked about this, guys. He does it again in Luke chapter 8, verses 26, with this man with a demon. So they get to the other side of the lake. They sail to the country of the Gerasenes. This is northeast of Galilee. And when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. And for a long time, he had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house, but he lived among the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, the son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man for many a time it seized him And he kept under guard and bound the chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And the demon responded, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command him to depart into the abyss. So just just quick little, Jesus is having a conversation with his demon that has tormented 
this man who was made in the image of God and has been possessed by this legion of demons for years. Now there's a lot to unpack here that I'm not gonna spend the time walking through, but I just want you to look at the impact that the spiritual realm has on the physical realm. And just open your mind for a moment about things you said, man, that's kind of weird. I don't think about that. Well, you can not think about it all day long, but we live in a world that has a spiritual realm. And at times, that spiritual realm, because of the kingdom of darkness, wants to impact, influence, and manipulate the world that we live in today. And sometimes it's in the lives of a person, and sometimes it's in an entire governmental structure. And you can't deny the fact that the war we are waging is not just in the flesh, there is a spiritual component as well. And there are components that we don't understand and we don't need to understand. Apparently, there is an abyss somewhere, which I assume is in the land of the dead, that these demons are saying, please don't send us down there. I assume that's probably the abyss that's referenced in Revelation, where these things are gonna go to until the day of judgment. And they're begging, please don't send us there. Please send us somewhere else, like over there in those pigs. Now why did they ask that? I don't know. It probably has something to do with the fact that pigs were unclean animals, and unclean things go with unclean things. But the text doesn't explain it, I don't wanna spend a lot of time in it, but I just want you to digest that what we're reading here, it's not myth, it's a real story that actually happened. So they begged him not to come, this is verse 31, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let him enter these. So they gave him permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in their city and in the country. And the people went out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and found the man whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they, they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed, and then all the people of the surrounding country, the Gerasians, asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with a great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. Isn't it fascinating? These men, they're not excited that one of their countrymen is set free. All they're concerned about is the fact that they're not gonna make money off of their pigs. The man whom had the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus said to him, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Again, Luke wants you to read that story in light of the parable. What aspect of the parable? The parable of the lamp. What do you do when you've been set free? You don't hide that light. You go and you share it with those around you. Why is that so important? Because all of this revolves around these parables. These stories are meant to be read in light of the parable Jesus just taught. And the reason why is because these parables, they've got legs. And they walk right off of this page into your life into the real life of real people who are demon-possessed, who are sitting in a boat, afraid for their life because a storm blew up that they didn't expect, 
in the lives of real people like you, people who have businesses, and you're wondering how you're gonna make payroll next week. In real people like you, who is a mom, and you've got a kid who has wandered away from the faith, and you're desperately trying to get them to hear the word of God and let it land on good soil. It, these parables, they walk into the real life of people like you, guys like you, who, who for the first part of your marriage, you were a nightmare to live with. But Jesus snatched you up and has changed your life. And you're trying to figure out right now, how do I change things? Is there any redemption? Could I ever get my marriage back? These parables walk right into your life and they cover every aspect of it. The final story from 40 on to 56 is more of the same. It's a woman who had an issue of blood for many years. She was healed. It's a young girl who died and God raised her back from the dead. More women that God heals and sets free and raises from the dead. This message, it's for everybody. This parable is, the best thing I could describe it as, is it's like grabbing hold of um, a live electrical wire. You can't quite tell by just looking at it whether it's live or not, but the moment you grab it, you'll know if it's live or not. It shocks you down to the very core of who you are. It takes shape in your real life, and as you start reading it, and you understand that this is for everyone, meaning it's for me, I have to start asking myself, how can the word of God, the seed, land on me and find good soil and produce a good harvest? Now it's important that Jesus said that the seed is the word of God, because that means that this whole book is the seed. And everything in it needs to land on soil that will produce fruit. If this word being taught on a Sunday morning lands on soil that will then get choked out because you are more concerned with the cares of this world than obeying scripture, you're never gonna grow in your faith. And even the things that you do have now, you're gonna find over the next few years, they're gonna be snatched away from you. But for those of you who are hungry for more, that desperately want this word to change your life, you're gonna find that the things you never had, all of a sudden, everywhere you look, there's abundance. You never really could find peace and put your finger on the thing that you're looking for until you got into this word and realized that the only thing you ever really needed was him, and he starts revealing himself. So here's what I wanna do before we close. I wanna take for just a moment and show you or ask you to consider just one simple way that the word as seed could land and develop fruit. I started the service this morning with a verse, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 is the word of God, therefore it is seed. I wanna cast the seed this morning and I wanna consider how that seed lands and what kind of fruit it produces. Let's read Hebrews 12, 28 through 29 together. It says this, <clears throat> therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus, therefore, 
There is something required of us because we have received this kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. What does the seed demand of us? That because we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that we offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. That's the kind of fruit that this word, when properly planted, produces in our life. So I wanna ask you just for a moment, I wanna walk you through this process and help you understand what you should be thinking and, and, and how to apply this word to start letting it develop fruit in your life so that you can take this principle and use it in other areas of, of your life and other areas of scripture. Ask yourself, what does it look like for that seed to land on good soil? What does it look like for a Christian or an entire church to produce acceptable worship with reverence and awe. What does that look like? What does it look like for a church every week when they gather to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, but also for that same church when they scatter throughout the week to continually offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe? What does that look like? I don't quite know. There are a few things that I think it probably means. But as a whole, I'm interested in pursuing it to figure out what it fully means. And what I'm interested in is to know whether you are interested in following me on this. Because here's the deal. As the pastor, this is where we're heading. And if that makes you uncomfortable, that's okay. I love you, but if you choose after today, you're offended or you're not interested in that, what you're looking for is a church that makes you feel more comfortable and okay with the decisions that you wanna make and, and, and have your own autonomy, that's okay. This just isn't the place for you. You should find somewhere else next week. But man, if you are hungry for discovering what it looks like to be the kind of Christian that hears the word of God's command to offer to him acceptable worship with reverence and awe, then you're in the right place. Now I'm saying this because we've been continuing to grow over the last few weeks. As you look around, there's, few and, there's fewer seats available each week. And what happens is when, when, when people come and they visit, what, what typically happens is a, a lot of times people will bring with them their baggage from previous churches or previous experiences. And what can happen is it can create just by a sheer mass of people an atmosphere that is contrary to the atmosphere that the church culture wants to create or that God wants to create. What it can create inside of the church is a kind of culture that's just real casual. Man, you can show up whenever you want. It doesn't matter if you come here on time. And you can leave early if you want. And when you do, man, hit those crash bars on the door as loud as possible. 
it creates an atmosphere where, you know what, if you've got to get up in the middle of the service, whether you've got to go to the bathroom or not, doesn't matter. Get up, just walk out. Take a phone call. Come back in. Do it four times. My brother in Christ, what are you doing? Why did you even come? Stay home. Stay in your jammies. Watch it online. It creates an atmosphere where the focus isn't Christ, the focus is the lust of the flesh. And girls start thinking that the appropriate dress for church is fewer and fewer clothes. It creates inside of uh, uh, men, the culture that like, well, it doesn't really matter if I'm here, and so we'll just show up whenever we want to. It creates the culture in young people that while we're sitting here, hearing the word of God and seeds are being cast, it doesn't really matter how it's gonna land because I gotta play retro bowl. Or I'm gonna surf, surf Facebook or, or check Instagram. It encourages the kind of atmosphere where it's normal to sit and talk to the person next to you or doodle or, or whatever you want to do but not pay attention to God's word that's being declared. Now here's the thing, those aren't the issues. Getting up, walking around, talking, checking your phones, those aren't the issues. Those are symptoms of a worse issue and the issue is a lack of reverence and awe. So what am I saying? I'm saying that the word of God is a seed that should land on good soil and start producing good fruit. And for I would say for the majority of you in here, that is happening. And I can tell that it's happening because if you're sitting in here and someone close to you is just sitting there like looking at their phone, what you're thinking in your mind is, God, that just seems so out of place. See, that's what I'm hungry for. I'm not standing up here saying, as we continue to grow, we're gonna put in more and more rules. If you leave, we're gonna lock the door, you can't come back in. <laughs> I'm not interested in mandating reverence and awe with rules, what I'm hungry for is for a group of people to make a conscious decision that I want Christ more than anything else in this world. And when things that are casual and reflections of this world start happening, God, they just feel out of place. If you got invited to the governor's mansion or the White House, you would not show up in shorts and flip-flops. Why? Because it, well, some of you might. <laughs> so, it feel, I see, you know, and that's the thing. That's the reason, that's the issue too, because we are also increasing at a place where the authority structures above us, we have no respect for them. And then that starts creeping over into other areas of our life. Because we have no respect for, for authority as a concept that God structured, then it carries over into our life and then we, we miss the sense that our God is a consuming fire. And how you approach him should be with reverence and awe. Amen. So this is what I'm saying. Well, let me start with what I'm not saying. <laughs> what I'm not saying is that I'm disappointed in you and that from now on there's going to be more rules. That's not what I'm interested. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the direction we're heading is a direction of obeying Hebrews 12, 28, and 29. Not just that, but all of it. When we gather on Sunday, I wanna see you here at 10. 
Not 1010, not 1017. Look, if you don't like the worship, but you like my preaching, go to another church and just listen to me online. What we're doing here is holistic. It's all of it. If you're not interested in the worship, if you're not interested in offering to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, and you just like hearing the message, man, go somewhere else. But if you're not, if you're hungry for what God is really truly doing in your life, and you say, well, I may not be down for all of it. I know how I feel about that. And I don't like the way that you're talking to me, but, mm, but it does kind of hurt so good. And I, I kind of want more of it. Man, you're in the right place. Because I'm just not interested in making sure that all of us are comfortable and that people who don't know God well come in and they, 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 they feel safe. Man, nowhere in God's word are people safe. Who, when you confront a living God who is a consuming fire, safe is not the word I would use to describe how you are about to feel. But that's so good. And so this is how I want us to close. My desire today is to cultivate a church a church culture where casual behavior, it's not outlawed, it's just, it just feels out of place and it just kind of fades away. It's not the kind of thing that anybody wants. And why is it the kind of thing that nobody wants? Because man, there's something greater, there's something more glorious, there's something more wonderful that all of us want. Not just me, all of us want it. And we want it because our God is a consuming fire. And there's not a single millimeter of our life that we are comfortable being left untouched by his mercy and his grace and his love that sometimes hurts but always heals. Amen? All right, let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.